good to be together as Brandywine Valley Church. I'm Pastor Nate. I'm the lead pastor here. We want to welcome you. Uh, if you're joining us here online, uh, actually, my parents are online uh, watching today because my dad's uh, going through some health stuff, so he can't go to their church. So welcome, Mom and Dad. Uh, say, would you all say welcome to my parents? That's pretty cool. We're praying for you. Um, it's also Communion Sunday, okay? So if, you, uh, if you're joining us online, uh, you want to grab the elements, Mom. Go in the kitchen, grab the elements, and prepare for that as well. Okay, we're going to be uh, in Genesis chapter 3. If you want to bring, uh, grab your Bibles or uh, use your, the one in front of you in the seat back in front of you, you can use one uh, online as well on your phone. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to say a word of prayer as we uh, dive into the text today. Father, Lord, we want to we draw close to you and learn to abide in you as we just sang. But we also know that there's, there's distractions that um, keep us from you. There's some in here that are here or watching online that are hiding from you today. Or maybe in shame or doubting you in some way or experiencing anxiety or fear because of the circumstances of their life or the things that dwell inside of them. And Lord, would you draw close to us and draw near, near to us as we seek to draw near to you, as we discover in your word the path of light and life, as we seek to come out of hiding and into the light, Lord, draw us to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Beatrice Webb, that might be a name some of you are familiar with, probably not many of us, I'd imagine. She was a, a British socialist reformer at the turn of the 20th century, and she believed, as many did in the at her time, that um, society was on the precipice of a societal utopia, that there was going to be an ushering in of, of a, a kingdom, as it were, of beauty and wonder, where we would be able to heal from our problems of poverty and violence and injustice through harnessing technology and educating the masses and changing the social structures of society. Utopia is just around the corner. And then came World War I followed by World War II, and the dreams of a society, a societal utopia began to drift into the distance. And Beatrice wrote, um, uh, wrote a diary all along her journey, and it struck me, something that she wrote in 1925, reflecting on a lifetime of work. Here's what she said. I had staked all the essential goodness on human nature. But now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us, and how little they seem to change, and how mere social machinery, science, or education will never change that, end quote. It's a remarkable statement, especially from someone who saw that all, all, all humans are good if we can just harness it, if we can just deal with the social structures, finally, humanity would be free to be good. And in fact, the opposite happened. See, she's saying that there's something wrong with humanity, that something in us leads to selfishness and to violence and corruption and war. 
And this is consistent across cultures and time. Science hasn't fixed it. Education hasn't dealt with it. Social machinery hasn't healed it. How can we explain this? And she's saying it's not just out there in society, is it? It's in, it's in us. She's saying it was in her. It's in you. It's in me. As much as we like to think otherwise, we know better, don't we? We know ourselves. And we know it's not just about how we act in public. We know our thoughts. We know what's in our hearts. Have you been in a car or do you own a car that has that new GPS system that, that when you go over the speed limit, a little voice will come on and say, the speed limit is 55. Have any of you been in a car like that? I wonder how long it would take you to reprogram that to make sure the voice doesn't come on. I wonder how many of us would want to admit how many times we'd hear that little voice. The speed limit is 55 on our commute to work or to school or wherever. It got me thinking, what if that little voice, somebody, you know, Elon Musk or somebody created an AI that that little voice goes off every time we sin, (laughs) every time we judge someone. You're judging someone, Pastor Nate. Every time we ate that second slice of pie, Pastor Keeler, you've already had one slice. That's plenty. What if every time we told a lie, every time we looked on someone in a way that we should not have looked at them or gossiped about them or had pride in our heart? I mean, the list goes on. How many of us would want that new AI technology? Yeah, I didn't think so. It reveals, it it would reveal what we already know, that there's something deeply wrong in the world that no ancient or modern ism or ology can fix. Why is it, what can explain why you and I can't even live up to our own standards, as low as they are sometimes, let alone God's standards? Why is it there's such a distance between our ideals and reality? Well, welcome again back to Origin Stories. This is a series looking through the origin of mankind. Who is God? Who are we? How did we get here? And the question that we're going to look at today, what went wrong? What went wrong out there? What went wrong in here? Genesis chapter 3 is going to tell us the answer. Now, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we've already been through in in, uh, January, but let me give you a little recap. Uh, Here in the beginning of Genesis, we see God's good intention for his creation, that the crown of his creative genius is humanity. It is making us the only creatures in his image that is endowed with ultimate uh, dignity, worth, value, equality in his image, and that everything is good. In fact, everything is very good for Adam and Eve. Everything is very good for humanity. They have a loving relationship with God and with each other. They have a glorious mission to be able to bless the world, giving glory to God. They have a beautiful environment to, to work in. I mean, this if there was any social utopia, this was it. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Well, we turn our page, don't we? We look at the next chapter and we get to Genesis 3. Now, the, the narrative of Genesis 3 is laid out in four movements. Uh, we're going to look at two of them today, two of them next week. Uh, the fallacy, we're going to look at this from the first five verses. The failure, verses 6 through 8. The fallout, verses 9 to 19. And then finally, the future, verses 20 
to 24. So this will be an outline that'll frame this week and next week. And next week, we're going to see how all of this plays out in chapter four between Cain and Abel as well. So let's first look at the fallacy. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, now pause there because we have lots of questions about this snake, don't we? Who in the world is this snake? How did this snake get here into the garden anyway? And are we just going to move past the idea that a snake is talking to Eve like we're in a Disney movie? I mean, what in the world is going on here? Well, Genesis doesn't tell us all the details of it. But what we do know is that the Bible is not some patchwork story, a collection of random stories all kind of thrown into one book. It's actually one story. It's one cohesive story from Genesis to Revelation telling the story of who God is, who we are, what went wrong, and how God is going to restore and fix everything. And as we read through the Bible, we come to understand the origin story of this snake, that this snake is a symbol or is maybe an embodiment of the evil one, the devil, the one who goes by many names, Lucifer, the fallen angel, the Satan, the deceiver, Beelzebub, also known as the father of lies. And what a lie he spins here in the garden. Let's continue to read on. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Which tree is that? That is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So one that he said, do not eat it. And in fact, do not even touch it, she said. She added that little part, I think. Or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the serpent's weapon of choice. Not a knife, but ideas. Not a gun, but lies. And it's a lie that has some truth to it, just enough truth to make it plausible to unsuspecting ears. See, and that's why the best lies are that way, right? The best lies are not lies that are on the nose, you know, like sacrifice your children to the gods in order to curry favor with them, right? We're, we're modern people. We'd say, well, that's a, that's a crazy lie. Who in the world would believe that? But a more subtle version of that lie we might believe, like, you know, in order to be successful and have the good life, I have to grind day at night at work. And you know what? My family will be okay with it. You know, everyone will be fine. It's not going to disrupt my relationships with them. What's that? Isn't that the same lie? Isn't that the lie? Sacrifice your children and your, your, your family to the God of career in order to get favor? It's the same lie, just spun in a way that our ears receive it. And this is how lies work. This is how the enemy works. And he told a particularly cunning kind of lie here in the garden. The serpent aimed his lie at the three most fundamental questions of life. Who is God? Who are we? And what is the good life? Who is God? 
Who are we and what is the good life? And God had already told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 the answers to all three of these questions. But the enemy spun a lie that got into the heart and soul of Eve and Adam. And by the way, he's still asking and these three questions and lying about them to this very day, as we'll see. So the first one is, who is God? What did Adam and Eve learn up to this point about who God is? They learned that God is our father, that he's a good father, and he is a father that we can trust. Well, did you notice the lie that Satan tells, that the serpent tells? He calls into question the character of God, doesn't he? He plants this idea, this lie, that maybe God isn't good, and maybe you can't trust him. He says, God knows that if you eat it, you'll become like him. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying you can't really trust God. He's trying to hold you down, Eve. He's keeping something from you. He doesn't want you to be wise like him. Maybe God isn't as good and generous and loving as you think. You can't trust God has your best interest in your heart. You got to take the fruit and you got to take control of your own life. And isn't that the same lie that we hear spun today, just in different words? Isn't it the lie behind all lies? You ever say, I know I should be generous and give more of my money away, but then we end up stockpiling it or spending it on things we don't need. Why? Or we say, I know I'm supposed to forgive this person, but we end up continuing to harbor bitterness and resentment and look for to get even with them instead. Why, Why do we do that? Well, it's because we doubt God's character. We doubt the goodness of God. We say, I can't really trust God with my money. I can't really trust God in this relationship because what if it doesn't turn out like I want? And so what do we do? We take control. And we take the fruit. We do it for ourselves. This is the sin under all sin. It's doubting the very character of who God is. Doubting his goodness and his love. So that's the first lie. He tells a lie about who God is. Secondly, he tells a lie about who we are. Adam and Eve knew who God was and who they were. That they are creatures made in God's image to glorify him. But what is the lie that is told? The lie that Satan tells is, You can be like God. Now, there's a good way to become like God, right? That's We we seek to emulate him, and and the more we follow him, the more we become like Christ. That's actually a good thing. That's not what the serpent is saying. What the serpent is saying is you can replace God. You can have what he has so that you can be your own center of wisdom, You can be your own control. You can have autonomy from God. You don't have to live under God. You don't have to be his image. You can be your own image. You see it? See, the lie is that we can be our own God. Don't let God limit you. Do you know up to this point, it was God who defined what was good. Everything that he created, it says, God made it, and then he, behold, he saw that it was good. Now, Adam and Eve are tempted to define good on their own, on their own terms. 
I know what's best for me. Again, isn't this a lie repeated in our modern day, in our culture? Be true to yourself. Only you know what's best for you. Don't let anyone tell you what to do or who to be. Follow your own heart. Be your own God. It's the same lie today. So Satan tells a lie about who God is, about who we are, and then the third fundamental question of life, what is the good life? The truth that God revealed to Adam and Eve is that the good life is living within God's moral vision and according to his glorious mission to bless the world. And he gave them a great mission and a great set of moral vision to live under. But notice what Satan declares, that the serpent declares boldly. He says, God's lying to you. God's lying to you. Certainly you won't die. In fact, the opposite is going to happen. You will truly live. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be illuminated. You're going to become godlike. You're going to be fully satisfied. This fruit is going to fully fulfill you. You will be happy. See, the lie is to define the good life on your own terms. To define the good life for yourself. Don't limit God. Don't let God limit your moral vision. Go get your own. And isn't this, again, the same fallacy told in a new way in our modern-day sensibilities? The good life is found in, in power and control and security and in comfort, in fame and followers, in entertainment and sexual conquest. I mean, you take your pick. Take whatever cultural narrative of the good life that is offered to you. See, to summarize, this fallacy from the serpent is a counter-truth claim of who God is, who we are, and how to define the good life. And every lie that the enemy whispers through our cultural ideologies, through the influence of social media, through our peer group, or even just through our own flesh is aimed at one or more of these fundamental questions. And just like Adam and Eve, we are easily, far too easily fooled into believing that we can't trust God with our life. And we have to take control to find the good life on our own. If you have kids or if you've been around kids long enough, you know the experience of trying to teach kids something like teaching them how to tie their shoes. And sometimes our kids, when we, okay, here's what you're going to do. They say, no, no, I'm going to do it myself. I want to do it myself. And he said, but you don't know how to tie your shoe. I'm going to figure it out. I can do it myself. Okay. So what do they do? They start trying to do it. And then, you know, they, they start getting angry and they're upset and they start crying and they come to you filled with tears and all knotted up shoe. And they're angry at you, by the way. It didn't work. <laughs> this, is this, this is Adam and Eve. This is us. This is what we do all the time. God says, let me teach you how to, how to do relationships in a way that's not going to harm you, but actually fill you up and encourage you and bring unity and beauty into your life. Let me show you how to use your sexuality to glorify God and bring unity and splendor. And what do we say? No, I've got this. I want to do it myself. I'm liberated. I don't need you. I'm going to figure it out. And what do we do? Well, after many attempts and trials, 
many tears and hurts. We bring our life all knotted up to God, often angry at God. I can't do it. I messed it up. Or you did it. You did this to me. Hmm. This is the temptation. And let me ask this question. What fallacies about God? What lies about us or about the good life have your life all knotted up right now? Is it a lie that you believed about God? Have you doubted his goodness, his sovereignty, his love, his control? Is it a lie about who you are, about something about your identity? Is it a lie about the good life, something that you're chasing that you thought would bring pleasure, you thought would bring purpose and meaning and validation, and yet it has you all tied up in knots? What is that today in your life? This is how the enemy works. He works through an ancient fallacy. Now let's look secondly at the second movement, the failure. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. I don't know what he was doing. Just like a, 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 a lot of the picture of men today, just sort of aloof, sitting there waiting to be told what to do. I don't know. But he eats it. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and then they realized that they're naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? There's one thing the serpent didn't lie about. And that is that their eyes would be opened. And indeed, their eyes were opened. But to their shock and horror, instead of becoming like God, instead of becoming courageous, you know, people, beings, taking control of their lives, exercising their own freedom and their own wisdom and making their own decisions and experiencing this, you know, this great moral vision of their life, experiencing the good life, instead, they become hiders. And in fact, instead of becoming more like God, they become more like animals, hiding in the trees from the gaze of eyes, covering themselves with leaves, hiding in the trees. It's tragic. It's a, sad, it's a pathetic picture, isn't it? They become afraid of the gaze upon their nakedness, the scriptures say. Now, that nakedness was not just physical. Nakedness is a Hebrew idiom that, that means vulnerability or shame. See, that's really what, they, what was uncovered. They realized in that moment Something's changed in me. Something's broken in me. There's, there's now a new shame that I feel, and that is what their eyes open to. Sin came into their lives in that moment, and they hid. They hid from themselves. They didn't want to see the gaze of their own nakedness, their own shame and sin. 
But then they hid from one another. They didn't want the other to see their shame and their vulnerability. They didn't know if they could trust the other person suddenly. They thought, maybe I'll be judged by them. Or maybe, maybe they'll use me in a way I don't want to be used. And so they hid themselves and who they truly were. Thirdly, they hid from God. They could not face the holy gaze of God looking upon their vulnerability and sin. And this kind of sums up the the human condition because the fall has made us all hiders. The fall has turned us all into hiders. And some of us could teach a master class on hiding. Many of us, this, if we take this idea and run it through our whole life, it will reveal a lot about ourselves. We hide all the time. We hide from ourselves, don't we? We don't really want to know ourselves that deeply. And so we want to avoid silence. Put the distractions in. I don't want to face myself. Or we stay on the peripheral the outskirts of deeply understanding who we are. Or we pretend to be somebody we're not, right? Fake it till you make it. Isn't this what we say? We numb ourselves with drugs and alcohol. We distract ourselves with our phones and with entertainment. Or we work ourselves to the very limits of achievements, whether it's in academics or sports or career, in order to validate ourselves. We are even willing to change our very identities in order to hide from our real selves. We also hide from each other. We have deep insecurity and fear of what someone else might think about me, or we we don't want to get into a deep relationship because I don't want to get hurt. I just couldn't take being hurt. Or we wear masks We hide our true selves behind a layer of the projection that we want people to think of who we are. I'm cooler than I actually am. I'm richer than I actually am. I'm funnier than I really am. I'm more important. I'm smarter. I'm nicer than we are. We all do it. We're so desperate for people to accept us that we become whatever they want us to be. Or... We pretend that people don't matter, and so and they don't, we don't even care about them, so we become the opposite of what they want us to be. It's all the same stuff. It's all the hiding. And ultimately, we hide from God, don't we? We fight, hide from his gaze because we can't bear for God to see us for who we truly are. We see our sinfulness in the light of his utter perfection and holiness, and so we hide from God. We either hide from God in rebellion, getting as far away from anything that looks like religion or or church or spirituality or morality, or, get this, we hide from God in religion. One pastor said, making fig leaves was the first man-made religion to make up for my guilt, to make myself good enough, I'll work to cover myself up. And that's what they did. This is man-made religion. let Let me get God's gaze off my back by working hard and doing enough good things. Wearing enough fig leaves so that I'm acceptable. 
We're all hiders. So the fallacy, this big lie that promises the good life in the end becomes an utter failure. Our eyes are open, but they're not open to our own beauty. They're open instead to our own despair, our guilt, our shame, our fear, our sin. We become hiders. Isn't this a really cheery sermon here today? Man, you're like, so glad I came. Wow. This is really heavy, isn't it? This is bad news today. Genesis 3 is, is bad news. But there's good news in this if we're willing to find it. Because while we hide, God seeks. While we hide, God seeks. Did you notice that it was not Adam and Eve who came running to God? But it was God who came to them on their terms, going through the trees to meet them. God seeks man. It's in our nature to hide from God. It's in God's nature to seek. And he doesn't come on a seek and destroy mission. Jesus came on a a seek and save mission. As we look at the rest of this story, and we'll we'll look at the rest of it next week, let me just kind of give you a little hint. God ends up removing their sad attempts to hide themselves, the fig leaves. He's like, that's not going to work. And he covers them with animal skins. And I think this is the Bible's hint to a massive theme that runs all throughout the scriptures. How did God get the animal skins? The blood of something innocent. The hide, the flesh of something innocent had to to die. The blood had to be shed in order to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, their shame and their sin. You see that? This is the Bible hinting it's hinting that, that there is a, a system that God implements. It points to the sacrificial system in the tabernacle, into the temple, and ultimately when we get to the New Testament, it points to Jesus Christ himself. You and I need to be covered. We are sinners. We need forgiveness for our sins, and we can't cover ourselves. You and I cannot cover it up by our own fig leaves. You and I can't cover it up by our own efforts, our own good works. It's not enough. Those are just fig leaves. We need an ultimate atoning sacrifice. We need an ultimate innocent one to give his flesh, to shed his blood for the ultimate sin to be uncovered. Not only covered, but made new. The Bible says he is going to take our filthy rags of our sin that clothe us, and he is going to cover us with garments of white forever and ever. And who does that? Well, it's Jesus Christ himself who comes seeking us behind the trees. That's really what communion is all about today. It's about that story of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus left heaven to come down on a seek and save mission. Jesus walked the earth on our terms and he went through the trees, as it were, to find us in our hidden, shameful nakedness and sin. And he was willing 
to, become, to be stripped naked and put on the wood of a tree so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. He was willing to shed his blood so that we could be covered and forgiven forever and ever. This is Jesus. I want to give you a moment to ponder this reality. I want to give you a moment before we come to this table to confess sin. Maybe it's, it's something that you're hiding from. Maybe it's a lie that you've been tempted to believe. And I want to give you a moment just to confess that. Prepare yourself as we take of this communion table. Let's do that now.